You know how we've been talking about how our system will burp, spit, vomit, and puke out the vast majority of the population every few years or so? How capitalism is built on the concept of boom and bust cycles? How we literally built in a healthy level of unemployment into the system to maintain balance and order? Every 10 years or so, catastrophe. The masses lose wealth, the top picks it all up. We elect leaders who prey on our weakness during these struggles by promising the world as they double down on the structural mechanisms of inequality that ensure nothing changes the next time around. Economy taking a shit? Give the rich a tax break, you know, for the job creators that never seem to get around to adding those jobs. Investment banks gamble consumer depository funds on risky investments that they don't understand? Not a problem. Here's a trillion dollar bailout. Very scientific evidence that your industry is contributing to increasing noxious emissions that are warming the planet and killing species off daily? Here's a subsidy. Do it again, over and over. Pandemic close your country and prevent everyone from working? Here's some money to stay at home and Netflix and chill or glue your eyeballs to a Zoom call. Unless, of course, you're an indentured servant of the system. Stock groceries, deliver packages, haul the garbage. You, my friend, are an essential worker. No. You're a hero. Just know that when this is all over, for all that we've given you, we're going to need it back. Not you, Elon. No, not you, Jeff. You, unfucker. All of you, unfuckers. You're the bloodsuckers. You with your demands for health care, for education, for food. Bloodsuckers, every last one of you. Did I say essential? I meant disposable. The Walton family needs more don't you see? Musk, Gates, Bezos, they have divorces to fund and planets to conquer, you miserable little pukes. You pukes with all your debt and your needs. Watch as they run. Run around working one or two jobs, side hustles on their free time delivering food through Uber Eats and DoorDash. Make weed legal, that'll shut them up. Release the new iPhone with more apps, more downloads and features to keep them tethered to their devices. There, they're taking to the streets again. Who let all of this riffraff out of the room? Quick, manufacture a crisis in a country we've never heard of before. Send them another stimulus check to tide them over and keep them online shopping. Or better yet, build the wall. It's not us. It's those greedy, raping Mexicans. Or maybe they're gang members from Guatemala or El Salvador. Hide your babies, turn on the news, and keep it on. Don't look away. Shh, just listen. Up next, we've got an expert who will tell you that taxes and immigrants are the death of democracy, and communist teachers are going to tell children that slavery was real. They're coming for your guns. They're coming for your Bibles. The only way to prevent communist, socialist, fascist, atheist, Marxist, queer, lesbian, transgender, illegal, Negroes, and welfare queens from taking what's yours is to stay tuned to this channel, arm yourself, grab a tiki torch, join a militia, and send your donation into this party or the other. It doesn't really fucking matter. Text fuck me to star 666 to enter the American capitalist lottery. Standard rates apply as we steal your identity and sell your information. We are the 99%. This is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. Just what the world needs. Another basic white guy who started a podcast. But it's fun because he curses. All through the podcast. I'm fucking going.
Welcome back to Unfucking the Republic. Say hey to Kit C, Cleveland Alex, Heidi H, Lara E, Stephen the Cook, Randy L, Alan and Sharon, Matt and Carrie, P, Slippery, Bookstore Kim, CJ L, all of the Nudsons, and Kyle C. FMF, FRM, and a howdy fucking do to the subfucker universe that grew quite substantially the past few weeks. Here's what I'm thinking on fuckers. The next couple of weeks are going to be a little weird because old Max here, Manny and 99 are going to regroup a little bit. See, the shows we have coming up require Chicago school-like concentration, and we're building in a little R&R, so here's the schedule. Like MMT last week, today's show is one of the first ones that we mapped out over a year ago as we take a look at the legacy of Occupy Wall Street. We're coming up on the 10th anniversary of this affair, and I wanted to get out of the gate early before mainstream media hops all over it and fucks it up. Next week is our R&R week, so we have a fun drop planned as we go through some of our personal favorite sketches. And on that note, we're interested in your feedback, either on social or by emailing us at unftrpod at gmail. You see, we write and voice these things to break up the shows, and honestly, we piss our pants putting them together. But it's possible that they're like inside jokes that only you and your stupid knockaround friends find funny. So let us know what you think of them when you get a chance. When we return, we have our special episode coming on the Great White North, eh? With a little surprise help from a friend. And just to set expectations there, I'm really hoping that it'll be informative for our American audience. But I imagine our Canuck listeners will be a little underwhelmed, if not slightly bemused, by our attempt to America-splain Canadian politics. I'm actually really excited to share this one with everyone, though, because Americans take for granted our neighbors to the north, and as I'm continuing to discover, largely haven't a clue about what goes on. So it should be fun and informative for most of us. Most of us. Oh, just make sure it's really patronizing and has a ton of jokes about apologizing and hockey and Ann Murray. <laughs> they love when Americans do that. Oh, great, Manny. You basically gave the whole thing away. Sorry. UNFTR t-shirts should be restocked in early August and keep sending in pics of you wearing your fuck Milton shirts out and about. And if you haven't pulled the trigger yet on purchasing our native roasted coffee to support both the show and native roasters of Puspatuck, get on it. If you don't drink coffee, you can still support Unfucking the Republic by buying us coffee on the link that says buy us coffee. So go to UNFTR.com to find out how this show is funded and how we find ways to support indigenous economic development in the process. In a couple of months, there will be all sorts of podcasts and special reports and news clippings covering that time that a bunch of unwashed kids gathered in Zuccotti Park in Lower Manhattan to air their grievances. The left will gloss over it and pay some lip service, and the right will talk about how disgusting it was. Some will be sentimental, but mostly the anniversary will come and it will go without the proper credit being given for what really went on. Now, I've alluded to my former life in media and journalism on the show before, and today's episode is a little more personal because it takes me back a decade into the thick of this time of my life and a very, very strange time in America. Which is funny because I remember thinking that at that time, it just couldn't get any stranger. Donald Trump facing new criticism for something he did on the campaign trail last night in South Carolina while defending his debunked claim that he saw thousands of Muslims celebrate the collapse of the Twin Towers here in New York. He appeared to mock a reporter with a disability. Written Take a look. Nice reporter. Now the poor guy, you got to see this guy. Oh, I don't know what I said. Uh, I don't remember. He's going like, I don't remember. I, oh, maybe that's what I said. This is 14 years ago. He still, they didn't do a retraction. 
That reporter he is talking about is Serge Kovaleski, who now works for the New York Times. As you can see right there, he suffers from a chronic condition that impairs movement of his arms. A Times spokesman says they find it outrageous that Trump would ridicule the man's appearance. Oh, well. Anyway, I want to share something from the 10-year anniversary of 9-11 on the eve of the Occupy movement. As a Manhattan resident during 9-11, it was and will always be a fresh wound, ready to open at a moment's notice. But 10 years on, my thoughts about our nation had changed pretty radically. Here's an excerpt. And since Wall Street was attacked, it too became sacrosanct. Only it wasn't Wall Street that died that day. It was people. People who deserve more than the resurgence of unrestrained capitalism and who are worthy of being remembered for all that liberty truly stands for. Like helping our fellow citizens in their time of need, not vilifying the poor while lining the pockets of the rich, or establishing just and equitable laws that protect every American, not just those who can afford to be protected. If these words are abrasive, then perhaps you're still asleep, immune to the truth that there are those who have capitalized upon America's grief by plunging our youth into two unforgivable wars and plundering our coffers with misguided economic policies that fattened the wallets of a pitiful few at the expense of the trusting many. Their triumphant legacy, our food is unrecognizable. The air is poisonous and our jobs are overseas. America's fat, polluted and broke. After a solemn decade of reflection upon the chicanery of those who promised to defend our freedom, it's time to speak out on behalf of those who are asleep, but desirous of truth, and those who are awake, but unsure of how to speak it. Well, at least I'm consistent on fuckers. See, a few weeks after writing this, Manhattan was rumbling again. But this time, it wasn't from above. It was from below. On the ground. Unfuckers have probably heard me reference my buddy Bobby from Brooklyn before. Well, I distinctly remember when he called me about something brewing downtown. I'm telling you, he starts every story with this phrase. I'm telling you, you gotta get down there. This says you written all over it, so fucking get on it. And so I fucking got on it. In the days and weeks following the encampment in Zuccotti Park, the word occupy was suddenly on the lips of pent up radicals and dissidents around the country. A movement had taken hold of Lower Manhattan and was infecting young people around the nation. Before long, San Francisco had it. So did Boston. It spread to Phoenix, Chicago, and even made its way across the border to Toronto. In the beginning, the media would only acknowledge it when it shut down a bridge or there was clear evidence of police brutality. But for the most part, the talking heads and pundits were dismissive of the unfolding drama. Glenn Beck famously said that Occupy would lead to gas chambers and guillotines and millions dead. But Occupy Wall Street became a stubborn, plucky, organized movement with staying power. Weather and cops be damned. It was, for a while, an undertaking so captivating, it garnered grassroots support throughout the country, despite obvious and ignominious attempts to stamp it out. As it turns out, America's youth was keenly in touch with its rebellious nature and wholly capable of harnessing it through social media and on the ground. What's more, they knew exactly how to protest derivatives and tax loopholes. Kind of challenging. Occupy Wall Street was not an exercise, nor was it a group of out-of-work malcontents and spoiled brats as some of the pundits and commentators tried to make us all believe. But most of the coverage was disgraceful. Fox, CNN, MSNBC, and other hack-ratings-hungry news operations did their level best to seek out the most outrageous or ill-informed members of the movement in an effort to discredit the entire affair. Or, as we would later learn, agent provocateurs. 
This served to only embolden the members of the occupation. The Occupy Media Center itself was so unbelievably organized and nimble in the face of multiple attempts to stifle the movement's outreach or ability to coordinate activities in the park that the Bloomberg administration had a lot of difficulty gaining the upper hand. Most of the news reports and the people that I spoke with about Occupy Wall Street at the time had the same question. What do they want? It's little wonder why the reporting was so poor because the question itself failed to grasp the meaning of the gathering. Asking what do they want was entirely besides the point. It's not that it's a bad question, it was just impossible to answer. The purpose of Occupy Wall Street was to begin a dialogue among disconnected citizens and encourage a process of self-discovery. Although they posted a declaration of principles, it only served to provide the framework for larger discussions. They weren't asking for anything. They were lighting a fire in the heart of capitalism on Wall Street and demanding that the world take notice. And it did. Behind this grassroots and seemingly organic process, there was an organizational brilliance in their restraint. By not asking for anything in particular, they were inclusive of every person and every idea. In modern day parlance, this movement was open source. Anyone was free to add to it, alter it, and improve it. And it's why dim-witted reporters had a hard time grasping it and why renowned authors such as Chris Hedges and Jeff Charlotte stood shoulder to shoulder with young people in Ron Paul t-shirts, Vietnam veterans, union construction workers, lawyers, and even some Tea Party activists. They managed to truly make this the people's movement. Part of the almost unmentioned power of the Occupy movement is that it challenged this corporate belief system, um, this notion that it's about us. Uh, it, it understood, as Martin Buber did in I and Thou, that in the end, it's not ultimately, if we care about a coherent society, us at all. It's about our neighbor. And in biblical terms, we betrayed our neighbors. We betrayed the people of color, African-Americans in places like East New York, we betrayed indigenous cultures on Pine Ridge. We betrayed the coal miners in West Virginia, just as we have betrayed undocumented workers. And uh, I look at what's happening as a kind of reawakening of moral values uh, and understanding that if we want a society that works, um, we can't abandon our neighbor anymore. Now, these weren't new ideas. The protesters had decades of language and concepts to build upon. But for most Americans, it was the first time that they were introduced to this guy. Mr. Chairman, as you know, there are people demonstrating against Wall Street in New York City and other cities around the country. And I think the perception on the part of these demonstrators and millions of other Americans is that as a result of the greed, the recklessness and the illegal behavior on Wall Street, we were plunged into this horrendous recession we're currently in. When people try to downplay the effectiveness of Occupy or call it a failed movement, I cringe. People in Vermont or lifetime progressives might disagree with what I'm about to say, but I believe it to be true. If not for Occupy, there's no Bernie revolution. Then again, if not for the Arab Spring, there's no Occupy. And if not for the filthy, murderous greed of the corporate and political class sucking from the teat of the Chicago school gangsters, there's none of this. Again, the themes of Occupy were present in music and culture long before protesters took over in Zuccotti Park. Hip-hop had a long legacy of outing these type of things. Tom Morello, a frequent guest and performer in the park, was walking through in wonder as hundreds and sometimes thousands gathered to watch him perform songs that he'd written for Rage Against the Machine 20 years ago. 
and the songs were built on the themes from social commentators like this guy. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. And all of this was in service and furtherance of ideas put forth by this guy. In other words, they are saying that there must be a restructuring of the architecture uh, of our society where values are concerned and with this I would agree with so in the quest for integration I think we can offer our whole nation something because there are three evils in our nation it's not only racism but economic exploitation of poverty would be one and then militarism and I think in a sense and in a very real sense these three are tied inextricably together and we aren't going to get rid of one without getting rid of the other so no the ideas weren't new the words weren't even new, but the approach was so old, it was new again, and it worked. It imbued a new generation with a sense of purpose and indignation. They were organized and tech savvy, prepared for the long haul, and one step ahead of the establishment, if only for a couple of glorious months. Welcome, Vice President Harris. It's an honor to meet you. Is she prepared to speak with me? Yes, ma'am, but I have to ask. Are you sure you want to go through with this? I am. Very well. Open the inner gate. I'm afraid I can't go further with you, ma'am, but we'll be watching from the cameras. I understand. He's all the way to the end of the hall. Oh, and try not to make eye contact with the others. Okay, you got this, Mamala. Hmm. <sighs> Uh, <laughs> take your top off. Oh, disgusting. Hey, girl, I love your shoes. Lindsay, what are you doing here? Oh, I can go at any time. I just like the uniforms and the food. It's pretty good. Miss Harris, please keep moving. These men are extremely dangerous. Black and white and brown and Asian Ooh, and short. Don't touch me. Oh, God. Hello? Have a seat, Kamalise. Dr. Cheney. I was hoping to ask you a few questions. Do tell. Well, sir, it's just that I have this... There's a... I'm in a position that... You have an idiot for a boss, and you're wondering how to get him out of the way so you can take over the country. Yes, sir. And you thought I would know just what to do. Uh, tell her to take her top off. Enough with you, Gates. I'll have you for dinner later. Uh, <laughs> okay. You think that just because I was able to bamboozle my idiot boss, hand out contracts for all of my friends in the war machine, start two large-scale wars, survive nine heart attacks, and shoot someone in the face without one standing trial, that I would help the likes of you? Sure, it's a matter of national security. You know what you look like to me, Agent Camelise? You look like a rube. A well-scrubbed, hustling rube with a little taste. 
Good nutrition has given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from the prosecutor's office, are you, Agent Camelise? And that record you tried so desperately to shed, pure establishment bullshit. What's your father, dear? A Jamaican intellectual? Does he stink of expectations? And oh, how quickly the DNC found you, all those tedious, sticky fumblings in the back rooms of fundraisers, while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the Oval Office. You see a lot, Dr. Cheney. But do you have the courage to tell me how to get this doddering old fool out of the way? Quid pro quo, Camelise. Can you get me some of the babies that Hillary and Oprah are feasting on? Uh, and like a 15-year-old with daddy issues that makes bad decisions? Shut, Shut up, up, Matt. Look inside yourself for the answer, Camelise. What would you put in? Uh, <laughs> he said Putin. I think he means call Putin. Literally, I'm going to kill you when she leaves, Matt. As for life in Zuccotti Park, the scene was really surreal. Between the time I first visited the encampment on day four and day 18, a mini-city had emerged. Rules of conduct were posted along the walls of the park. There was a media center, a volunteer booth, a food line, barrels of drinking water, a compost pile, rows of books, and even a tobacco rolling station. They even had their own newspaper, the Occupied Wall Street Journal. Every evening at 7 p.m., they held a general assembly where the faithful would gather to air their grievances, plan for the days ahead, and coalesce some of the more substantive ideas that percolated throughout the long days of demonstration, learning, and discovery. What was puzzling to me as a writer at the time was how little media attention the movement garnered in the first few days. It was clear to me that this was organized by professional dissonance, and my interactions with live streamers and planners in the park who had been part of the Arab Spring movement. As much as it was organic, it was guided. I distinctly remember this scene unfolding on the fourth or fifth day of the occupation. I was literally the only one with credentials wandering around and speaking with people. And during a conversation, I sensed some tension, the kind of tension that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. See, the blue shirt cops, who were remarkably aligned with the protesters, something that is largely unacknowledged, were suddenly gone. They were aligned because most of the movement was in support of the working class, of which the blue shirt working class cops were very much a part. They too had been systematically fucked over for decades by the system. But at that moment, they disappeared, and in their place was a wall of white shirts, and shit got real. This was Bloomberg's real army. The white shirts from Command Central descended upon the park and proceeded to bust heads and attack defenseless protesters with a violence that frankly shook me. Tables were turned over, young men and women were thrown to the ground and bloodied, some were dragged away, makeshift tents and tables were shredded and confiscated, and everyone was in a panic. And like that, it was over. In the maelstrom, I lost my credentials as I was snapping as many pictures as I could, and then I hightailed it into the street. Now Bloomberg's white shirts were there just to hand out beatings, nothing else. Sent in to break the occupier's spirit. And it makes sense because these people were protesting the big banks and Wall Street, and every one of those fuckers spent their days staring at Bloomberg terminals. And this irony was lost on no one. Now in the weeks to come, actors, musicians, poets, luminaries would make their way through Zuccotti to show their support. It was common to see Mark Ruffalo, Kanye West, Tom Morello, Cornell West, Chris Hedges, and others. But through it all, the park belonged to the people. 
The movement against corporatocracy had taken hold and finally found its footing in the park. And while the media struggled to parse a bumper sticker message from the Occupy Wall Street movement, the occupiers continued to grow in numbers, awakening America's dormant revolutionary spirit. Then Bank Transfer Day on November 5th became one of the first tangible manifestations of the Occupy phenomenon, where Americans were encouraged to move their money from large public banking institutions to community banks and member-owned credit unions. And millions of Americans did exactly that. So it was having an immediate effect. It was small, but it was real. It was tangible. And as the occupiers celebrated this tangible victory, the Bloomberg administration continued to vehemently crack down. I visited the park as often as I could, but my trips wound up being sporadic. As a member of the press, it also felt awkward at times to just observe what was happening as the temptation to participate was so palpable. And as the days wore on, as the weather worsened, conditions in the park became pretty grim. But Occupy was scoring victories and finally having an impact on the media. And then... Shortly after midnight, more than a thousand police dressed in riot gear filled the streets of downtown New York, moving in on the Occupy Wall Street camp, bringing heavy equipment and a no-nonsense attitude. On November 15th, 2011, I woke to the news that Zuccotti Park had been cleared overnight. Most knew this moment would arrive, but it was still disheartening. And two days later, I returned to Lower Manhattan and I wrote the following piece. The police barricaded the corner of William and Pine Streets in Lower Manhattan, preventing the tributary of protesters who had broken off from the main throng from doubling back towards Wall Street. Cordoned off, several chose to sit in the street and accept incarceration in the name of civil disobedience. It's 9 a.m. on November 17th, the International Day of Action for the Occupy Wall Street movement, and the arrests are just beginning. I'm aware of the time because for a moment, everything is eerily silent, but for the sound of the bell from Our Lady of Victory Church tolling above us. The din of the helicopters overhead and the shouts of shame as protesters are dragged into the nearby NYPD van fade away while the bell rings for what seems like an eternity. As the last chime echoes in the street, the cacophony returns as though someone is controlling the volume button to the soundtrack of dissent. Gradually, my eyes return to the scene unfolding in front of the church door, which bears a quote from Cardinal Spellman that reads, This holy shrine is dedicated to Our Lady of Victory in thanksgiving for victory won by our valiant dead, our soldiers' blood, our country's tears, shed to defend men's rights and win back men's hearts to God. How strange that a church, born during World War II and forged in blood, should serve as the backdrop for the nation's symbolic struggle against the excesses of the neighborhood it calls home. America's new civil war is spilling into the streets of cities throughout the country, and here, in this moment, it's raging beneath a monument to our spiritual and temperate selves. Over the past few years, I've made no secret of my contempt for Wall Street and the insidious corporate interests that run this nation. Admiration for the Occupy Wall Street movement has gushed from my fingertips and poured onto the page, and I'm perpetually amazed at the breadth and fervor of the burgeoning revolution. Being here, seeing it evolve and take shape so quickly, so dramatically, has influenced every corner of my mind. Those of us who believe America has been co-opted by greed and fallen victim to radical nihilism view the agitation of the 99% as the manifestation of our nation's morality, if such a thing can possibly exist. The question of morality is central to America's struggle. We perceive ourselves as a good and righteous nation, purveyors of liberty. And at times, this has been the case. Often, however, our actions belie this view of ourselves, particularly during the imperialistic periods of expansion. To wit, we spent the better part of the 19th century expanding our empire to its natural boundaries, squashing and annihilating the indigenous people of the continent every step of the way. 
Then we deified the likes of Andrew Jackson by imprinting his likeness on our currency, thus bestowing him with the greatest honor of a capitalist society. These are not the actions of a moral nation, but victories such as these in the name of manifest destiny have always served to rationalize our pursuit of omnipotence. The first half of the 20th century held more promise. The country as we know it today was nearly assembled and America was finally recognized as a dominant player on the world stage. Our financial and military ascension gave weight to the Monroe Doctrine and the Roosevelt Corollary, which established complete hegemony in our hemisphere. Yet despite Teddy Roosevelt's bellicose nature and hawkish views, his and most subsequent administrations tended towards isolationism. Between the great wars, which were seen as moral imperatives, there was work to be done at home. And during this time, America hammered out a legal, industrial, and economic infrastructure that fully recognized our potential as a nation. Internally, this approach also allowed us to focus on social issues such as equal pay and civil rights in the latter half of the century. Unfortunately, while the nation toiled away at crafting a system that recognized the rights of all citizens, we began behaving badly in the rest of the world. At precisely the halfway mark of the 20th century, we became embroiled in the fighting in Korea. This conflict and the conjuring of boogeymen in far-off lands presaged an era of unprecedented immorality when we would conduct costly battles against phantom enemies. More precisely, it marked the beginning of the military-industrial complex. In A People's History of the United States, Howard Zinn describes the dawn of this era as, quote, an old lesson learned by governments, that war solves problems of control. Charles E. Wilson, the president of General Electric Corporation, was so happy about the wartime situation that he suggested a continuing alliance between business and the military for a permanent war economy. Two million Koreans and 36,000 Americans perished in the formation of our newfound ideology, which continued into Vietnam and then again into Iraq and Afghanistan and several other places across the globe. America has exported fear and death in the name of democracy, but in the actual pursuit of oil and natural resources. But our politicians didn't go it alone. No one person owns these deeds. Over the past few decades, the interests of Christian fundamentalists, Wall Street tycoons, the ruling class, and individuals of enormous wealth have gradually coalesced in the quest for a new world order. They are the 1%. They're the reason that I'm standing almost nose to nose with the cop in riot gear, his club drawn and his eyes fixed on me as I chronicle the events by the church. There are those who decry Occupy Wall Street as unpatriotic, misguided, or worse. These are understandable reactions to an uncomfortable reality. The reality is that Occupy is more than a movement to restore sanity to the financial markets and equality to our economy. Occupy is a cry for help from America's id. It's the realization that we've strayed not only from the optimistic perception of ourselves, but also from what we strive to be as a country. Ultimately, this is a test of our commitment, not to democracy, but to humanity. It's more than free speech or the right to peaceably assemble. This is about the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances. As a free democratic society, this is the penultimate failsafe, the last opportunity before total revolutionary collapse. So as the occupiers continue to refine their message, our political leaders would be wise to listen carefully. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is a very real battle. Perhaps the first battle truly worthy of the inscription at Our Lady of Victory. I have this feeling, man, because you know there's a handful of people actually run everything. That's true. It's provable. It's not a fuck. I'm not a conspiracy nut. It's provable. Handful, very small elite run and own these corporations, which include the mainstream media. 
I had this feeling who's ever elected president, like Clinton was, no matter what your promises you promise on the campaign trail, blah, blah, blah. When you win, you go into this smoky room with the 12 industrialist capitalist scumfucks who got you in there. And you're in this smoky room and this little uh, uh, film uh, screen comes down. And a big guy in a cigar, roll the film. And it's a shot of a Kennedy assassination from an angle you've never seen before. It looks suspiciously off uh, the grassy knoll. And then the film, the screen goes up and the lights come up and they go to the new president. Any questions? Capitalism has only succeeded to the extent that it has because it inherently recognizes the most fundamental quality of our nature, greed. But capitalism can only thrive within a democracy that cradles, coddles, and spoon-feeds free enterprise with regulations that govern conduct. It's this necessity that is lost upon my libertarian friends who seek to abolish anything that would impede free markets and entrepreneurs as though successful Americans weren't aided by laws that protect their ideas and property, infrastructure that allows for the passage of trade and trustworthy currency with which to transact. But we know now on fuckers where the roots of these concepts reach. They start in the Chicago school and spread through the think tanks and Murdoch's media empire in the careerist hallways of the RNC and the DNC, out across the nation in state houses, and in every boardroom in America. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. If Milton Friedman and Ronald Reagan and Rupert Murdoch and Mitch McConnell are still winning, then what was it for? What should we make of the fearless cadre of revolutionaries who raged against the machine in the belly of the beast on Wall Street? The ones who tried to dismantle the system and capture the imagination of the next generation, but only for a moment. Why didn't it work? And what if it had? Imagining the most unthinkable collapse of capitalism brings to mind the words of Chairman Mao, who pondered this fate and concluded that, quote, humanity left to its own does not necessarily reestablish capitalism, but it does reestablish inequality, end quote. If human nature presupposes that we're destined, as Mao says, to reestablish such a system with such unbearable inequality, then what are we to do with our empire as it exists today? Those are the questions I pondered then and I'm still in search of as we work through this audio journey together. Every 10 years, every fucking decade, one step forward, countless steps back. The corruption of Nixon and our attempt to rebuild thereafter. A decade later in the Reagan revolution obliterated the middle class. A decade more and Clinton ushered in the era of mass incarceration. Another decade on and Bush institutionalized Islamophobia in our foreign policy and slaughtered hundreds of thousands of innocents abroad while pampering the 1% at home. Another financial crisis and another feeble attempt to undergird the poorest among us with policies scripted by corporations and more giveaways to the 1%. And now here we are, another decade on, and the struggle for equity continues. Want to know where big ideas you got to go to to occupy Wall Street movement? Because what we're talking, when you, when you think about, you look at, you got monarchy, American Revolution birth of the new nation, right? Slavery, birth of new freedom. Now we got oligarchy. And the, the, and the movement is saying, look, it's not that we hate slaveholders, we hate slavery. It's not that we hate kings like King George III, we hate monarchy. It's not that we hate oligarchs on Wall Street, we hate oligarchy. And if we don't have an American Revolution in the tradition of Martin Luther King Jr. and Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and others, we're not going to have an America. 
So why cheer this moment? Why look back at Occupy as a success and try to get ahead of the other shows before they offer their half-baked and paltry criticisms and just move on? It's because of the language. And we talk about this a lot. We talk about this in our Tyson principle. We talk about this ad nauseum on this show about language. We're all learning this language together. And it's because of this shared language that we can begin to coalesce a strategy to move forward productively. Occupy is what inspired my work for a decade and prompted me to turn to this format and reach out to all of the unfuckers in the world. Occupy gave us a new shared language of dissent. The corporate class could no longer hide from it. The 99%, what a term. The 99% income inequality, indigenous rights, mass incarceration, modern colonialism. Occupy scared the fuck out of the establishment and gave rise to the modern progressive movement because the occupiers got it right. They knew the buttons to push and the levers to pull. They went after the bastards on Wall Street and the feckless politicians who do their bidding. In the beginning, they were laser focused and they succeeded in this one thing and that's all that matters. They succeeded in tying it all back to greed and inequality. When policy is pursued first and foremost through the lens of inequality, suddenly it's all clear. Divided schools, crumbling infrastructure, wage stagnation, boom and bust, mass incarceration, structural racism, all of it. It's why the end of Dr. King's life was dedicated to the poor people's campaign. He understood after decades of agitation and protest that nothing would fundamentally change unless and until we altered the balance of power and created opportunity through equality. To me, that's the legacy and the lesson of Occupy. That's what it got right and what we inherited in our fight to restore balance to our politics and lift people out of poverty. As for the occupiers, well, that's a different story. Some went full alt-right. In fact, the roots of the alt-right, the real online scary shit, can be easily traced back to some of the hackers that helped kick off the movement. Now others are still raging against the machine. And some just hung it up. But the beauty of Occupy was that there was no head, no icon, no fallen idol, no spokesperson. In a way, we still all share, own, and possess that language against the 1% that we can carry forward. Now, ultimately, I think I possess somewhat of a quixotic optimism that despite the issues that plague our system, that there's hope that we can still exact a proper balance between economy, ecology, and morality. It's why I do this every week, and it's why you listen. Occupy Wall Street and Zuccotti Park in those initial weeks was perhaps the single greatest expression of democracy that I've ever seen so far. Here's hoping that there's more to come, because as much as the language of dissent from Occupy matters, we are still the 99%. Here endeth the tribute. Yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I just, okay. Okay, we're rolling. Dude, what the fuck? 
I I did I didn't do them. Okay? I didn't do show notes. 99 usually helps me with this part and she's on vacation this week and you're away next week and I'm taking a little break and I just I I fucked up, okay? I fucked up. Wow. Did you just blame 99 and she's not even here? <laughs> You know how badly she's going to kick your ass. I know, I know. And she left me specific instructions on how to do it, and I just, I, I just folded. It's on me 100%. So next week, when we do our best of skits show, I'm going to power pack the show notes and the shout outs to make it up to everyone, I promise. Honestly, I don't think anyone gives a shit. As long as you don't blame 99. That's all I care about. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. Might as well blame Obama while you're at it. All original music is by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. UNFTR is supported by listener donations or by purchasing our incredibly delicious native roasted coffee. Visit UNFTR.com to find out more. And lastly, the essays our show are based upon can be found for free at UNFTR.substack.com. <laughs>